Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Tonight, as I prayed, I'd like to look at the rationale, the evidence the prophetic nature of the claim of Christ's resurrection. And to do that, I think it's very important that we get this in biblical context. So I've entitled the first section of our lecture tonight, The Biblical Message. And this is critically important as I prepared for this tonight, listening to several atheists and reading lots of material and watching several debates about the historicity of the resurrection of Christ. I think it's an often missed foundation that we've got to think through. And if we get lost in the weeds of so many of the things that are thrown out in the discussions that we have, even though, as I've tried to warn you in the past weeks, most people are not atheists, they are not anti-supernatural, and still, there's a lot that is said as it relates to this topic that misses the foundation of it all, and that is the biblical message. To dive into the New Testament is not advised before we spend time thinking about the Old Testament and what God has revealed. Certainly, Jesus spent many hours training his disciples to think about how the Old Testament finds its fruition in the new. So I want to think through some basics, some fundamental things that the Bible teaches us. Number one, letter A, that people are made for God. There's just nothing more, nothing more fundamental than that. And I think you could find a lot of common ground when you talk to non-Christians about this. If you are dealing with 90% plus of our society, they believe there is a God. And to think about what that means, that this is not just someone who sits outside of space and time and is there and we can affirm it because it makes sense intuitively, but that we are made for him. He's certainly not made for us, which is the very man-centered, kind of selfish way to look at the reality of God. But as Genesis 1 says, God creates man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them, and he blessed them, and he said, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on earth. And just, just as human beings were called to exercise dominion and to have a profitable relationship with the creation that God had set him in, we are under the dominion of God. We are made for his pleasure, for his good. And, it, and we can't reject that truth that is woven throughout the scripture. As Colossians 1.16 says, For in him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible or invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him, speaking specifically of the second person of the God here, that is Christ, and all things were created for him. And, and, and to start with that basis, where a lot of the traditional historic catechisms begin, what is the chief end of man? It is something related to, to use biblical terms, that we are for God. We are made for God. Our purpose and our existence is to relate to God just as we would be stewards of a creation and exercise dominion over those things. God exercises dominion over us. We're made in his image. We reflect his character and God has made us for himself, as Augustine said so poetically. And our hearts are restless until we find rest in him, which is true as the Bible says about all things. Romans chapter 11, verse 36, this doxology in the midst of a amazingly rich part of scripture for from him, these are very important prepositions here, for from him, all things come from him, all things through him, he empowers all things and all things are to him. And so he should be the one who is glorified forever for from him and through him 
and to him are all things. Everything comes from him. He sustains and, en- and, and enables and activates and animates all things, and all things are to him. They should be directed toward him. Everything should have its focus on him. He is the center and the predominant being of the universe, and that is the fundamental assumption and assertion of Scripture. We are made for God. People are made for God. And there's a great upside, just as there would be in anything serving its created purpose. There's an upside for us when we are fulfilling our purpose. And if our purpose is to find our directional focus toward our creator, and that that creator is not only going to create us and sustain us, but we are now focusing our attention to live for him, to focus on how my life can be for his glory, as it's put there in Romans chapter 11, then there's an upside for us in that we are, as I like to say, that great Greek word, we're teleos. We are fulfilling the purpose that we're made for. It's just right. It fits. When things are used for some other purpose than they were created, it doesn't fit well. And so this is part of the good news. It's the foundational part of the good news that we share with a lost world that's trying to live for other things. And that is we need to turn our attention toward the creator. And since he created us and he sustains us, we should be directionally focused toward him. And that would be for our good. And as Jeremiah chapter 2 verse 11 says, my people, which I think specifically in context obviously is Israel, but it would extend by implication to all of God's creation, my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. And, and that is the problem. It's, it's profitless. It's vain. It's, as Ecclesiastes says, it's chasing after the wind. And everyone should be appalled at that. When something is used for a purpose that it's not intended for, as heaven looks over the rails of, of heaven, as they say, the angelic host, they should be appalled. People should be shocked and utterly desolate, pulling their hair and, and, and grieving and beating their chest. Why is this the way it is? You ought to be appalled at this, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. The first evil is they've forsaken me. I mean, that would be one thing. That's the passive, non-directional focus on God, that we don't live for him, we don't focus on him, we don't give thought to him. The fountain of living waters. What a good and refreshing teleos thing to do, to understand that we are made for him and that we live for him. And the second thing they've done is they've hewn out, they've dug out cisterns, like they're looking for water in wells. They've hewn out, dug out cisterns for themselves, and they're broken. They're not useful. They don't hold any sustaining liquid in them. They're broken cisterns that can hold no water. The good news of the gospel begins with the assertion to a lost world that you were created for God. The chief end of man, as the catechisms like to echo one another, is to glorify God. That's the directional focus of what we were made for. And the upside is then we can enjoy him forever. That's a good summation of the biblical doctrine of anthropology. We are made as individuals in the image of God to enjoy him after we understand our directional focus is to give him glory, to give him weight, to give him focus. Like spokes on a wheel, give focus to the hub. That is the purpose that people are created. Every person you run into, they are made for God. And what a good thing it would be for them to actually find that as their life focus and purpose, to be able to say to God, I am here to do anything for you, in any place for you, at any time for you. That's just the fundamental reason for human beings to exist. And the good news is that's tremendously fulfilling. It's the right thing. It's the teleos thing. It's the thing that fits what we're made for. So that's a good thing for us. People are made for God. And if you want to state it in one of the most extreme ways, Psalm 1611, you've made known to me the path of life. The directional focus now is to go toward the horizon of saying, my directional focus is on God. You've made known to me the path of life. And in your presence, where I'm headed and what I'm focused on, there is fullness of joy. And one day to be in your 
immediate presence, at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. Now, the problem is if we don't see God at the center of creation, then we'd like to see God, as so many people in our world do, as the butler or the helper or the maid in our life that can come along and help me focus on myself and my goals and my direction. And we think that that just intuitively is the way we would like to function when someone gives us an idea about here, you ought to learn about the God who created you, then great, he's got power. Matter of fact, that's one of the things atheists love to say about Christianity. Christianity grew, they say, because people said, well, he's the most powerful God. And of course, as the skeptics and atheists say, well, then that's why people were drawn to him, because he can be our helper. He can be our butler. He can be the one who makes our lives better. As opposed to recognizing the Bible says we were created for God, to glorify God. He's the one we should care about. He's the one who is the master, the father, the the one to which we give our service. And the upshot of that is for us, there's a great there's a great benefit. And that is that we find the fulfillment of what we were made to be. So people are made for God. That's fundamental. That's where this all starts. Of course, the Bible in chapter one says we're made for God. The details of that recapitulated explanation in chapter two. And then in chapter three, we see the fall of human beings. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food. At least she thought it was. Looked good. Delight to the eyes tree was desired to make one wise. That was the promise of it, at least in title and in the temptation. So she took the fruit and she ate of it, which of course she was told not to. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So we have a very simple test. If I'm God and I'm the center of everything and I'm in charge and I have dominion over you, then you do what I ask and everything will be great. Uh, It'll be fine. It'll be good. It'll be fulfilling. It'll be pleasurable. It'll be just what it ought to be. And instead, the test was one that human beings said, I don't want you to be in charge. I want to look at it from my perspective and have things be my way and to accomplish my goals, irrespective of what you've said. And so human beings rebelled. And that's a good word for it. People don't feel like rebels, but that is what the Bible teaches when we choose to do what we desire over what God has prescribed. So how far does that extend? Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 12 says it extends to the most devout Jew, to the most pagan, heathen, non-religious person out there. Uh, The Jews aren't any better off than the rest, for we all have already charged, certainly in the first two chapters of Romans, now halfway through the third chapter, that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. We all can be under the rubric or the heading of sin. We are all sinners. As it's written, he starts quoting a slew of Old Testament passages. None is righteous. No, not not one. Not one understands. Not fully, at least. No one seeks after God. At least not purely with a right motive. I mean, that's just the problem of being under sin. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. And that's the picture of the wandering sheep. Right? They've all turned away, each to their own way. The shepherd's saying, go this way. This would be right. Let me be the shepherd. Don't be your own shepherd. And no one does good. Not even one. So the picture in the Bible is that everyone that we share the gospel with would be absolutely where they need to be and finding the ultimate profound meaning of their create, creating, being created, their creation, if they would recognize that they're created for God, to live for God, to bring glory to God. But the problem is they've rebelled. It started in the garden. It continues on in every person born of Adam. So people have rebelled, even though we were made for God. We've decided to go our own way. So people, of course, are sentenced to death. I put that in quotation marks because death is described in a way that you wouldn't expect when you think biologically, certainly in the narrative of Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, it says, the day you eat of the fruit, you will surely die. And yet the day that they ate of the fruit, there was nothing biological that immediately snuffed out their life. So we realize there's more to that word than just dying biologically. 
And the first dying is relational. We see that very clearly right after they eat of this fruit and they violate the dominion of God in their lives and say, I want to have my own dominion. In verse 7 it says, then their eyes were opened. Then, that is when they ate the fruit, the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked, which is a profound reflection of their own shame in this case. So much to that. We've talked about it before. You can read about it. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. We're going to cover ourselves. And they heard the sound of, of Yahweh in Yahweh God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, whatever that means. The intimacy they had with God was now being offered again. But of course, sin is in the way. There's a relational death. There's a relational distance. There's a separation. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of Yahweh God among the trees of the garden. So here we have something that was all good until I rebelled. And when I rebelled, now there's distance, there's separation, there's shame. There's no longer that connection relationally that we had. Let's call it relational death. Relational death is described throughout the Bible. Some of the passages that I think are most quotable and most visual in this as they give us some kind of spatial uh, analogy. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Behold, Yahweh's hand is not shortened that it can't save. He may seem passive. He may seem deaf, but his ear is not dull that he cannot hear. The problem isn't that God is not hearing you when you cry out to him for things. It's that your iniquities have made a separation. Your sins have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Just as the garden reflected that alienation between God and human beings, so it was throughout the, New, the, the Old Testament and into the New Testament that the picture of relational death is the foundational definition of human beings. Sinful human beings, we call them fallen human beings, are in relational death, a relational separation from God. Does that mean that God cannot exercise the common grace to give gifts to human beings? Of course, he sends his rain on the crops of the evil and the good, causes his sun to rise on both the just and the unjust. God is doing that all the time, but the reality is that the relational connection that he would want to have with his creation, that he would have designed and instructed to have, we don't have. Relational death. Couldn't be any stronger than to use this term, which is exactly what I'm talking about, is a relational death that you in your trespasses, from birth it says here, you were dead in your trespasses. Those sins have made this relational death, this relational distance, this relational barrier, relational alienation, it's made it a reality. And he's talking to Christians here in Ephesians chapter 2, so he speaks of that relational death as a past tense, in which you once walked. That was just your life. You walked down the path of just going your own direction. And that made you at odds with God. You followed the course of the world because everyone in the world, that's the way they are. Unless they've been called out and they're Christians, those are people that do what they want to do. And they follow the one who is the tempter in Genesis 3 who'd already gone through this whole thing by denying the dominion of God in his life and decided to do what he wants. And so that prince of the power of the air, which is a synonym in this text for the rebel of the angelic class, Satan, that spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, the Genesis 3 temptation is replicated millions of times over every minute of the day on the planet. He's at work in the temptation of human beings, having them establish their own dominion. I'm in charge. I do what I want. Among whom we all once lived, of all these people doing that stuff, in the passions of our flesh, whatever we feel like doing, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind. It looks good to eat. I don't care what God says. Those are the kinds of things that reflect the garden transgression. And we were by nature, this is who we were, children of wrath, children of God's Anger, that's what wrath means. Don't get lost in the word wrath because it's such a church word. You don't say, my husband came home from work and there was a lot of wrath in his life. You say he's angry, he's mad. And that's the picture here. God is with a just kind of anger, not a capricious kick the dog anger, as I like to say. He comes in with a measured response 
just as you would be in a courtroom listening to someone who has a slew of charges against them and that kind of crime that you've heard articulated and the damage that's been done, if you had a just, we might call it indignation toward them, that's what God feels and has. That's his disposition toward all of mankind. The rest of mankind, you were like that. He's looking in the past tense here. That's relational death, and it's the reality for all human beings until there is conversion. Well, of course, we think about the sentence in Genesis chapter 3. It moves beyond relational death. Because the day they ate of the fruit, they surely died. They died relationally, but they also began to biologically die. I mean, that was a part of the process of what started the day they ate of the fruit, and it ended in the separation from their spirit, from their body, which we define as death. That is a good definition of death. When your spirit leaves your body, that's that's death. And so in Genesis 3.17, here is God speaking very clearly in the sentencing of Adam, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Well, then cursed is the ground because of you, which by the way, you have to keep in context. Adam was made from the ground. Why do you have cancer? Why do you have arthritis? Why do you have migraines? Why do you have baldness? Whatever it might be, things are messed up in your body because it's made of the same material of the planet and the planet and the fabric of the universe has been cursed. And so you're going to have pain, pain in your body. You're going to have pain in the process of even trying to feed your face to keep your biological unit alive. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread because you need to eat, but it's going to be hard until you return to the ground. You're made from the ground. Out of it, you were taken. That's why you're going to have problems in your biological body. And one day it says, because you're dust, you're going to return to dust. That'll be the picture of you in your body reflecting the moral rebellion that you chose in Genesis chapter 3, the beginning of the chapter. You chose to rebel against my dominion, then I'm going to retract my grace in terms of not only relationship now, but also biology. So there's going to be biological death. So biological death and relational death, they go hand in hand in Scripture, side by side in Genesis chapter 3, biological death. Well, you say, well, there's babies dying and babies aren't making any moral choices. I understand that. Romans chapter 5 verse 12 addresses this. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sin. What does that mean? Not everyone has sinned in the same moral capacity as Adam and Eve. Well, that's true. But there is this connection. He's about to describe it because of the imputation of what Adam and Eve have done in the garden. All of a sudden now, their progeny, their lineage now, inherits the same relational separation and therefore the just biological penalty that came upon them. And you have that reproducing even before there might be any capacity, as it's put in the Old Testament, to know your right hand from your left, your moral good from your moral bad. For indeed, sin was in the world before the law was given. Some certain things you were guilty of even before the law was given to articulate and clarify that. Coveting was wrong even before God said, don't covet. But sin is not counted where there's no law, which is part of the larger argument that started in chapter 2 in Romans. Yet, the point is, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even before the law was given, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. And that's a critical issue. You don't earn your position of alienation, and you don't earn your position of reconciliation. You don't earn your position of alienation, and you don't earn your position of reconciliation. The point is, it's been imputed to you in Adam that you die relationally and biologically. Now, you compound the problem every day, and you did before you got saved, clearly, probably in a greater way. I trust in a greater way, because your sanctification has curtailed that pattern, redirected that trajectory. But you also got the physical, biological penalty of death. That is so important for us to catch. 
the imputation of Christ's righteousness in Christ is similar to, is it, or reflecting the archetypal picture, at least in time, of Adam's transgression being imputed, the penalty of that, to you. Just like the credit of Christ is imputed to us, accounted to us, credited to us, an accounting term in Scripture. So, biological death. That's why you've been to funerals. That's why you know people that have died. That's why we grieve over the loss of sin entering the world, even down to infants. The whole point of the good news of the gospel that we are handing to our world, holding out the words of life to them, is that God has solved the problem. God solves the problem. That's what the Bible says. Relational death. Let's think about that. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Speaking of, you know the way, the Father and I, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, this picture of if you want to get right with God, I'm the one who can do that for you. I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one's going to come to the Father except through me. I can solve your alienation. That hostility between you and God, because of me, I can bring that back together. That's called reconciliation, the doctrine of reconciliation. And that's the picture in Scripture, the solving of relational death. If you'd known me, you would have known my Father also. You get right with Christ, you get right with your Creator. As arrogant as that may sound, just like there's only one way off this sinking ship. There's no helicopter, there's no submarine, it's only a lifeboat. That may sound arrogant when someone announces it as the ship is listing, but that's just the facts, and God has provided it, and we should be grateful that there is a lifeboat. And our job is to get the word out about the lifeboat, because there's salvation in no other name. So we've got to be missionary-minded, as John 14 would imply, and Romans chapter 10 would explicitly say. Relational death, even in the passage that speaks of our being relationally dead, dead in our transgressions and sins, Ephesians 2.1, in verse 4 it says, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So God makes us alive together with Christ. If you can get right with Christ, you're going to get right with him, and then he's going to save you from the penalty of alienation. There's going to be a reconciliation between you and your creator. And he raised us up with him, which we're going to see as a reflection of of the biological problem. He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is a relational, legal, forensic accounting of who I am, even though I don't feel like I'm at the right hand of God. I don't feel like I'm exalted in some glorified state. Well, you're not in time, but you are in legality. You are in your acceptance before God. God now can see you as no longer alienated from him. And I hope there's some kind of subjective reflection of some improved relationship with the Father. You should feel that. You should sense that. But the point is, you've been legally trained. Just like if you sign over, you know, the papers on a car, it's legally been transferred, even though it may not feel like it's yours yet. So that in the coming ages, here's where we'll get to see it and feel it fully, that he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. If there is at his right hand pleasures forevermore, then this path of life as it crescendos into the eschaton, into the end of what God has planned, the idea is that's when we experience the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. And that is the key. And that is that it's then and there, it's not here and now. The over-realized eschatology of all the prosperity preachers, all the faith healers, even the first century kingdom now people that thought everything about the reality of Christ's kingdom should be experienced now is just a farce. The emperor has no clothes because we all sit around and play like we've got all those things as though we see him face to face, but we don't. We see dimly through a glass now. We get a foretaste of that subjectively to some measure, I hope, but the reality of our Christianity is then and there. Right now, it's a legal transaction, 
and one that we have some subjective foretaste of perhaps, but not in the way that we will because it's the coming ages that he shows his immeasurable riches. He shows the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ. So relational death is promised to be solved. Well, then, of course, biological death has been said to be solved in Christ. Not yet. I know a lot of people that have died and their body is still in a grave, in a coffin somewhere. But Jesus said, in this case to Lazarus, as Jesus is responding to Mary and Martha, and he says to her, your brother will rise again. As he often does in his leading statements or leading questions, he's going to get to a point that he wants to make. And Martha said to Jesus, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. He's going to biologically be alive again. That body's going to be alive. And Jesus said to her, I just want to tell you, I'm here to solve that biological death problem. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Just like I'm the way to the Father, relationally, I'm also the way to your body not dying anymore and not being subject to death anymore. Whoever trusts in me, pistuo, if you have a trust in me, believe in me is how it's translated here. It's got a preposition in you, which is much different than just believing the facts about Jesus or believing that he exists. Whoever believes in me places his trust in me. Though he die, that's the biological reality. All of us now are experiencing the common grace of biological life. But if you come to the end of that biological life, yet shall he live. You're going to live on. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Then you're going to have life after this life and it's going to be with a biological body and that biological body will no longer be subject to death. There'll not only be a resuscitation like there was with Jairus's daughter or Lazarus in this case in John 11, but there will be a glorification in the sense that there will be no subjectivity to that body ever dying again. So it's more than a resuscitation. It's a true resurrection. And that word in some way should be reserved in our mind for this. And that is that there is a life of a reconstituted body that is no longer subject to death. The problem of biological death being solved, as it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 21, for as by a man death came, here's the Romans 5 reality again, we got death spread to all men because of one person. So by a man, and of course he was 100% man, he had to be to represent in the equation of God all the humanity that needed to be rightly dealt with. And that means in terms of not only sin, but in terms of righteousness. A man, by a man, Christ Jesus, comes also the resurrection of the dead. Just like we saw the problem of biological death with a human being who is now imputing that as the head of mankind. Now we have the head of the redeemed who are going to have all of these imputed merits given to them in Christ and allow the problem of biological death to be reversed. And then he speaks of several things regarding the kingdom and Christ. And then he says, and I'll get back to that passage later, then comes the end, the eschaton. At the end of this horizon, the right hand of God, when he delivers the kingdom to God, Christ does, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power that's in rebellion against him, everything that is against him. And he must reign until, that is in heaven, until he puts all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. And the idea in this passage is clearly, the subject on the table, is biological death. So God is going to solve biological death. That is the foundation that I find, if you care what I think, is missing in almost every discussion or debate about the resurrection with people saying, I don't think he rose from the dead. You need this foundation right here. And in your evangelism, you need this foundation. What's the whole point? I heard a very eminent scholar who was asked that question, like, what's the point? He had no answer. And I hope he had that feeling because I felt like you blew it because the whole idea of the resurrection is not, well, he was vindicated. It's way more than that. It's the whole point of the Bible. People are made for God. That's the way it ought to be. Everything's great. When we could be 
focused on, centered on, glorifying God, that would be the most pleasurable, fulfilling thing. Talk about springs of sign, living water, as Jesus said. I'm going to give you the water of life, living water. That would be perfect. Problem is sin. We've rebelled. Problem is a sentence. Relational death, biological death. Christ came to save that problem. That's the essence and foundation of the gospel. So tonight we're here to look at primarily the biological reversal of the penalty and sentence of rebellion. So we're going to talk about that, starting with the prophetic plan, which again is another part. I'm, I'm going next to this because in a lot of the discussions I see about the, the resurrection, this is hardly brought up and it needs to be much, much, much more often. And that is the prophetic plan. What does the Old Testament say about all this? And I want to start with this, letter A. It's all about eternal solutions. Always about eternal solutions. Just start looking for this and you'll see it everywhere in your Bible study. The eternal solutions of the Old Testament. Let me give you some examples. Let's start with this first category, an eternal kingdom. As soon as I say those two words, eternal kingdom, it's not hard for you to think of passages, I hope. Oh yeah, eternal kingdom. Okay, you're thinking New Testament. Go to the left side of your Bible. The Old Testament, eternal kingdom. Oh yeah, Daniel chapter 2, verse 44. And in the days of those kings, this is the statue of Nebuchadnezzar that Daniel comes and interprets. Goes through all the head and the torso and the legs and the feet and the toes and all that. In the days of those kings, that tin kingdom, king, toe thing of mixed clay and iron. In those days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom. Look at these words. That will never be destroyed. What is a kingdom? It's the dominion of God over his creation. What's the most important part of his creation? Human beings made in his image. We're exercising dominion over this little part of our world. And human beings as a whole are supposed to exercise dominion over the whole world. He exercises dominion over all people. And those people, we're assuming here, if it's a kingdom that's working the way it ought to, every rule and authority is focused on him, giving glory to him, living for him, anything, any place, any time for him. Well, one day all those kingdoms are destroyed. He's going to set up a kingdom, a kingdom of people that are in subjection to him. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And that's never going to go away. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. There will never be a a coup d'etat. There will never be some kind of uprising. There will never be some takeover. There'll never be a vote. There'll never be anybody impeached. None of that's ever going to happen. It shall break in pieces all the kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it, this kingdom that God is going to set up, shall stand forever. Could it be any more clear than that? There's a coming eternal kingdom. Ezekiel 37, 25. They shall dwell in the land that I gave my servant Jacob, Israel, back in the Old Testament in Genesis, where your fathers lived in that land in Canaan. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. Start looking for that. You'll see it. Are there some passages using hyperbole and poetic passages of the Bible? Yes, you do see that sometimes. I'm not looking for those. I'm looking for passages that are dealing with, in context, clearly, things that go on continually, year after year, decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia, the idea of God setting up an eternal kingdom. Isaiah 60, verse 15, whereas you have been forsaken and hated, certainly Israel was, with no one passing through, a forsaken land, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. I'm going to set up a kingdom, a real kingdom. It's going to be a kingdom that on this earth, though I know we have a big transformation coming when the earth of this life gets transformed into the earth of the next life where righteousness dwells. He's going to melt this one down, create the new one. But we're going to have this new earth and this new Jerusalem, and it'll be a joy forever. And it will be Jerusalem. It will be the center of the world. It will be a literal place with a literal city, with a literal palace and a literal throne and a literal street and a literal river and literal trees and mountains and all the rest. Jeremiah 31, 35 through 36. Thus says Yahweh, thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea and its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts, the army is his name. 
Yet the fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord. Then the offspring of Israel will cease from being a nation before me forever. God speaking of eternal, ongoing realities. Ezekiel 37, 25. And they shall dwell in the land that I will give my Jacob, my servant Jacob, where your fathers live, they and their children, and their children's children shall dwell there forever, and my servant David shall be their prince forever. So I've got an ongoing kingdom with an eternal king. So now I'm talking about who's going to be in charge. God says, I'm going to set up a king in this kingdom that's going to lead my people, and he will be the eternal king in that place. That's the point of Ezekiel 37, 25. Going to get that kingdom, those people submitted to me, and now I'm going to have a monarch that's leading them. And he calls them here, shorthand, David, my servant, and he'll be their prince forever. Daniel 7, 14, we quote this one a lot. So key in the scripture, Jesus' favorite words for himself, the son of man. Verse 14, and to him was given dominion. That's what we were supposed to have over creation. He's supposed to have that over us. And he's gonna have dominion and glory and a kingdom and all peoples and nations and languages should serve, singular here, him, this king. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. It shall not pass away his kingdom and his kingdom, one that will not be destroyed. So he gets a kingdom. He is in charge. He is a son of man. All dominion and glory is given to him. And everyone is going to serve him. Not just Israel, but everyone from every tongue, tribe, and nation. Jesus is now prophetically announced in Luke chapter 1. And the eternal king is described this way. He will be great. In case there's any confusion about who we're talking about, Jesus. He will be great and be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. And of his kingdom, now, there'll be no end. So he's going to rule over this kingdom and it's going to last forever. An eternal kingdom and an eternal king. And of course, this is getting around to what we're going to talk about tonight and why Christ's resurrection is so important. There will be eternal citizens. Daniel chapter 12, verses two and three. Can't have eternal citizens because the problem with the citizenry of the earth is they keep dying. We used to live to be a thousand years. We had a flood, messed up the world in a radical way. People blame it on asteroids and the Yucatan Peninsula and all the rest of a big asteroid. The reality is a flood that destroyed the world and precipitates fall in the lifespan of human beings. And what happens is we have everyone dying now at less than 100 years for the most part. And we don't have eternal citizens. So how are we going to fix that problem? Well, God says, I'm going to fix the problem by I'm going to making sure that people don't die anymore. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise, they shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars, how long shall they shine? Forever and ever. So we have people now in the kingdom under the eternal enduring king in a kingdom that's never going to go away. And now we got citizens in it that are not going to die. Well, they have died physically, but they're going to rise out of the dust that they've returned to, and they're going to rule in this place and be ruled as citizens of the king forever and ever. Isaiah 26, 19. And your dead, the dead bodies, the people that died among you, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake. He's going to speak to these dead bodies and sing for joy. Well, I'm dead. Well, you're not anymore. Your body's not dead anymore. For your dew is the dew of light and the earth will give birth to the dead. Here's a statement of the resurrection in the Old Testament. And he says there's going to be a future resurrection and the citizens are going to come to life. Ezekiel 37, 12 through 14. Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am Yahweh, 
when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you and you shall live. We're speaking of biological life here. And I will place you in your own land. So we have an eternal kingdom. We have subjects now. And you shall know that I am Yahweh. I have spoken. I will do it, declares the Lord. By the way, when you're back in your minds, if you were with us, when we were in the gospel of Luke, in Luke chapter 24, we have this road to Emmaus discussion. And Jesus starts talking about all these things regarding him beginning in the law and the prophets and the, and the writings and the Psalms. So he says, from the whole scripture, I'm, I'm now speaking of all these things about the resurrection of the Christ. And if I said to you, great, here's your Bible. Give me those passages where all this is true. You've, you've got to know that we don't just have one or two. We have all of these that if you piece together, if we're going to have an eternal kingdom with an eternal king and eternal citizens, all of that's going to argue for the bodily resurrection of Christ. And when Jesus comes back on the scene and starts speaking of these things to them, this is the kind of stuff that had to be part of that Bible. What was that discussion like as you open their mind to the scripture to see those things? Well, by the way, the Bible says the Holy Spirit should be involved in doing that continually in our age. The Spirit of God, the greatest miracle of all, is opening up your minds to conceive and understand the scripture. It's called the doctrine of illumination, that you can look at scripture and see these things. You can read the Bible a lot of times and not see them. And hopefully even tonight, if you're a Christian, the Spirit of God helps you understand these things. You say, wow, I see the necessity of the resurrection of Christ all throughout the Bible, starting with Genesis 3, all the way through. And this is the kind of thing that is critical for us to understand. And I rarely see it in all the stuff that's talking about the resurrection. We spend all this time about hallucination theories and empty tombs and conspiracies. I'm not against it. I preach those sermons, right? You've heard me preach those sermons. But the foundation of it all is this. God's prophetic plan requires an eternal kingdom, eternal king, and eternal citizens. Keep going. Psalm 49, 14, and 15. Like sheep, there are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. These are the kinds of things that had to have been spoken of by Christ to remind them of the need for life after death, not just relationally in some spirit form like the disciples thought they were seeing when Christ appeared to them like, oh, it's, I'm seeing a spirit. But no, the bodily resurrection of the people in the Bible is necessitated by Old Testament scripture and Christ would be the first fruits of that showing that this is what I'm going to do. Starting with my son, David, if you will, the son of David who's going to sit on the throne of his father, David. And that's what the resurrection was all built on. Psalm 73, we quote this one more often because it's such a great contextual psalm that deals with things we struggle with every day. The jealousy of the wicked, the injustice of our world. But he ends with this. I'm continually with you and you hold my right hand. Okay, there's about a relational connection there. Great. You guide me with your counsel as this whole psalm Asaph describes, corrects his thinking about the kind of grief he was having and the fretting he was having. And afterwards, you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail. That's a description of death. But God is the strength of my heart. How's that ever going to beat again? And my portion, my sustenance forever. The picture of scripture of the eternal life of the people that trust in God that has to be necessitated through the portal or the doorway of a bodily resurrection. Psalm 23, 6. I know you know this. I'm going from maybe obscure prophetic passages to the familiar that you've heard all your life. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. It's a great word. Radoff in Hebrew. Chase me down. And the thing is, I feel like it's way behind and I hope it would catch up. But one day it will. It'll overtake me. And I shall dwell in the house of Yahweh for a long time till I'm really old forever. 
The prophetic plan of God starts with eternal solutions. And that is we have a God who's going to take the rebellious dominion of people and leaders and monarchs and rules and authorities and powers, and he's going to get rid of all of those and supplant those, those dominions and those, those tribes and those nations and those provinces with his kingdom, and he's going to set up his king, which will be the eternal one who is never going to be subject to death, and then he's going to raise up the dead bodies of those who are his subjects, and he's going to reign over them forever, and they're going to dwell in the auspices, in the oversight, in the domain of the Lord forever. This solution was foretold. Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 26, the 70 week prophecy. Weeks, of course, seven sets of 70, right? 70 sets of seven. So we got seven. The only way that makes sense is in terms of years, the poetic way to talk about this period of time. 70 weeks, 70 sets of seven are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity. Well, that did happen. The payment was paid. To bring in an everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet or prophecy and to anoint the most holy place, to set it apart, to say this is God's place and God will now dwell here. That's the Jerusalem of the kingdom and more perfectly the Jerusalem of the new Jerusalem. That is what God has set up. That's what he has planned. It's been decreed. It's not going to change. It was God's plan. These five centuries before Christ shall be cut off and have nothing. Now, of course, that doesn't look like I'm doing much if the anointed one, in this case, the Christ, as he's described throughout the book of Daniel, the one king who all dominion is given to, if he's cut off, well, he's not cut off permanently because he's going to do all these things. In his death, he'll do a lot of it, but in his life, as we'll see, he'll do so much more, which is more than ending as a martyr in Jerusalem. Isaiah 53, of course, we have to discuss this, and we've done it in much more detail in other messages and lectures, but let's at least get this, verse 5. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Okay, I've got a atoning problem of sin. We ate the fruit. We wandered in our own path. So we've got to take care of that. How are we going to atone for that sin and put an end to all of that? So it's not counted against us so we can solve the relational death problem and then solve the biological death problem. Well, he's got to somehow take this on for himself. He takes in human form the penalty of human sin and he's crushed not for his own sin or his own iniquity. He's crushed for our iniquity. He's pierced through and he's punished and tortured, not for his transgression, but for our transgression. And upon him was the chastisement as if we didn't get it. He's saying it differently now, God is, that brought us peace. I need peace. I need this alienation from God to be fixed. I need this chasm of hostility to be reconciled. And by his wounds, by his punishment, we get to be healed. Without the putting the end to sin, I don't have the problem of the penalty of sin, of iniquity and transgression taken care of. But if he can be crushed and pierced and chastised for my iniquity, well then of course he heals the whole problem of biological death. Now you want to try and put that at some, put the spotlight of this passage on some kind of temporary band-aid and that's all it is. If you had every ailment in your body healed right now, right? That's not a glorification of your body. The ultimate healing that we're concerned about is the healing of our biological curse. And that will happen. And so it is. In his atonement is all that is required for our healing. But we're not believing in this over-realized eschatology that somehow this is all going to happen in this age. It's going to happen in the next age because, as I said, it's about the then and there. It's about the next life. And so it will be that we will all bound up in that atonement of the work of the cross. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned, each one of us, to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him. Man, if we don't get the substitutionary atonement picture here, we need to get it. He's laid all of that on him. So the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Which, by the way, the departure of penal substitutionary atonement is rampant in our day. 
Do you understand that this is the core of biblical theology? That God took our sin because he is justly indignant and angry. Use the word wrath if you want, because that's the biblical word. If you want to use that, it's an English word, I understand. At your sin, God is ready to punish because he's just, just as just as a judge punishing a criminal. He's right to punish us. But he's taken his son to absorb that penalty, to take that hit for us. You reject that, you've gutted the entirety of the gospel. And, and it, here it was, centuries before Christ came. Seven, eight centuries before Christ. So he's going to fix the sin problem, as it goes on to say. He was oppressed and afflicted, but he didn't open his mouth. If this is not reminiscent of Leviticus chapter 1, verse 4, I mean, this is a picture of a lamb that is led to the slaughter. You bring your lamb, you bring him to the slaughter during worship, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so he didn't open his mouth. That's the picture of atonement in the barbecuing of lamb chops on the Sabbath. You had a picture of this innocent dying for the guilty so the guilty could go home with a clear conscience, as clear as it can be through the symbolism of Old Testament worship. And so it was that Christ was that, this one that was looked forward to. He, the picture of this suffering servant that would come. And he didn't open his mouth. He was willing to do this. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. He was beaten, crowned of thorns. All of this is going to happen centuries later. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? Stricken. Substitutionary atonement. Here it is. Stricken for the transgression of my people. The Messiah would fix the sin problem. What's the sin problem? My sin deserves God's punishment. God the Father will not punish me because he's punished his son. If you don't like that theology, you don't like Christianity. If you don't buy that theology, you don't buy Christianity. You bought something else. This is the fix for the sin problem. God has got a problem with you. Who are we saved from? We're saved from God the Father. That sounds like fingers on a chalkboard to the modern cool guy pastor in our generation. We're saved from God? Why would he need to be saved from God? Because you're a sinner and he is holy. And Christ had to come to live in your place and die in your place and to suffer the just penalty of your sin. You got that, you got some nonsensical theology and it makes no sense. Messiah would fix the sin problem. He made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. I just want to put this here because it's a reminder that whatever sin you think might be hard to control, James says the hardest sin to control is your mouth. The hardest sin to control with your mouth is deception. And here he is, not even a lie in his mouth. This is how our sin is atoned for, not only by absorbing the penalty, but by living righteously the life in human form that we could not live. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. Yahweh crushed him, putting him to grief making his soul, as if we didn't get it with the lamb metaphor, making, he, he, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied. The father looks, and this is what we call propitiation in New Testament translations. The idea of God is absolutely satisfied. We're done. We pay, the penalty has been paid in the words of Christ to tell us die, paid in full. It has been paid by his knowledge. My righteous one, my servant shall be accounted will make many to be accounted as righteous and he will bear their iniquities. The Messiah would fix the sin problem and the Messiah would fix the death problem just to stay in Isaiah 53. It was the will of the Lord to crush him and put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. Here's the part I put the ellipsis on in the last slide. He will prolong his days and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. If he's been put to death, if he's poured out his soul unto death, how are you going to see your offspring? How are you going to live among your progeny, your offspring, your children? Well, how are you going to do that? Well, God's going to have to prolong your days. The Lord's going to have to somehow make you prosper when you're dead. That's called the resurrection. Verse 12, therefore, all, therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. He shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death. 
How do you divide the portion of some kind of warfare and to enjoy the, the bounty of the, of, the, of the war and the spoils of war if you're dead? Well, you poured out your soul unto death, but God has raised up this suffering servant because that's what it was all about. It was about an eternal kingdom with eternal king over eternal citizens. And of course, the king's going to rise after he dies, being numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many. And present tense, he makes intercession for the transgressors. Here is a picture of ongoing eternal life, which matches everything else about the king of the coming kingdom, where God rules over a subjected people who are finding their great satisfaction and joy and pleasure in him. And now Christ comes on the scene after he dies and lives among them as their king and intercedes before the father by his righteous life and by being able to point to his substitutionary, satisfactory, propitiatory death on a cross. That's the picture. Hosea thirteen fourteen. the Messiah would fix the death problem. I'm just pointing to the fact that God himself has to fix the problem. He can't have Moses do it. He can't have David do it. He can't have anyone do it. We have all these heroes of the Bible clearly depicted as failing. And, and this is not how you paint ancient Near Eastern history of your monarchs or your prophets. And yet we see them as sinners. So God has to reach out and ransom, pay, make the payment of human sin on his own. And he does it through the incarnation and a substitutionary atonement on a cross. I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, this poetic word for the grave. I shall redeem them from death. I'm going to buy them back from death. Oh, death, where are your plagues? Oh, Sheol, where is your sting? This is the Old Testament looking forward to the fact that God would himself fix the problem of death. And he did it as we see in the Old Testament, even in that triune picture of the Son of Man presented before the Ancient of Days. And this one who's going forth from long ago, being born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, to quote Micah 5.2, We've got a Messiah coming incarnate, living in our place, taking the wandering sheep, calling himself the good shepherd, saying, trust in me. And if you do, I will solve the relational problem. And guess what? I'll also solve the biological problem. And then one day you're going to look at death and go, it's gone. There's no plague in it. There's no corruption in it. You're not dying in a grave. Your physical body no longer is subject to its dominion. Isaiah 25, 7 and 8. And he, God, will swallow up on this mountain the covering, look at the context, the pall of death, the pall of of subjection, all the bad things that happen here in Israel that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over the nations. The problem of the wages of sin and death is everywhere. He'll swallow it all up. He will swallow up death itself. Look at this picture of the promise of this solving of the death problem. He'll swallow up death forever. And the Lord Yahweh will wipe away tears from the faces and the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth. Yahweh has spoken. He says that kind of thing when he says, listen to me. This is it. Look at the promise I've made. No more death. God himself is going to have to solve the problem. His prophets can't do it. His Old Testament kings can't do it. He has to come on the scene and fix it himself. Exactly as the picture in the New Testament, Acts 2, 22, men of Israel, hear these words. This is the preaching of the book of Acts some 30 times. In the book of Acts that we're studying on the weekends, you're going to see them looking to the resurrection and saying, the resurrected Christ is the answer. The bodily resurrected Christ. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and the foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed him by the hand of lawless men and God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Why? He's the Messiah. 
He can't be held by that. He was perfect. Wages of sin is death. He's not a sinner, but he's going to take on the sins of the people. He's going to satisfy the payment. As David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. He is, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad. My tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor let your holy one. And there's only one real holy one. Seek corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, right? Does that sound like Psalm 16? And you will make me full of gladness in your presence. There's the rough paraphrase of Psalm 16. Brothers, I say to you with confidence that the patriarch David has both died and buried in his tomb with us to this day. You go go look at the ossuary in his bones, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set up one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. But this king, an eternal kingdom with eternal citizens, would need the eternal king to first solve the sin problem and then ascend the throne, not just in heaven, but then destroy the last enemy, which is death, and he will come and he will reign on that throne. He spoke about the resurrection of Christ, for he was not abandoned to Hades. His flesh did not see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. As he says to King Agrippa, it was not done in the corner. You know about this. And when he says to Agrippa, and I don't even have this on my presentation, you know the prophets. You believe the prophets. Hey, Agrippa, even you know. This was what the Old Testament was about, was an eternal kingdom with eternal citizens led by an eternal king. The king has arrived. God has solved the problem, and death was on his agenda. This is good stuff. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, For I delivered you as of first importance, what also I received, that Christ died for our sins according in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. The Messiah fixing the death problem was foretold. Everyone saw it. Everyone knew it was coming, though they were dense, and sometimes they were incredulous about believing it. The whole point of Jesus going back to the Bible study, looking at Scripture, was, can't you see this? This is what we need. We need the eternal king to take care of the death problem, to take the pall that's cast over not just Israel, but all the people, and to remove the sting of death. This is not an idea. This is not a principle. All the liberal theologians that want to debate this, this is nonsense. I would rather believe in the tooth fairy than to buy some kind of non-bodily resurrection ideal of following some kind of resurrection principle and say, no, the Messiah of the Old Testament is physically, biologically dead makes no sense. You're going to gut the gospel of that. Watch every organization, seminary, church, denomination that is that has bought that first lie, usually starting with the virgin birth and going on to the resurrection of Christ, you end up gutting it of all of its purpose, and I guarantee you it will collapse. Who wants to go and be a part of that? You might as well eat, eat omelets on Sunday morning and play golf. There's no real purpose in that. Ultimately, it provides nothing. It's a hollow, ringing, clanging gong. Jesus himself, of course, foretold it. He came on the scene in Matthew 16, 21, said, hey, I gotta, I gotta go to Jerusalem. I'm gonna suffer many things. The elders of Israel, the chief priests and the scribes, I'm gonna be killed and on the third day be raised. That was the picture. That was the forecast. Even right up until the two and a half years, the year, the six months before it happened, literally in time. This is about the six month period before his crucifixion, as I recall. Peter took him aside, said, no, talk about being in Credulous. He began to rebuke him and say, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. The reason I put this next verse up, because I want you to catch this. But he turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, you adversary, you opponent, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. Here's the key. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Where would I get the things of God from? I would look in the book that God wrote. I would look in this God breathed Theonustos book, and I would say, In that book, you have his stuff. That is the mind of God. 
And what's the mind of God? Eternal kingdom, eternal citizens, eternal God, fixing the problem of death and rebellion and the sentence of death and returning to dust. We need all that reversed. And he says, of course I'm going to go and be killed and then resurrected. Got to solve the sin problem in my death. Going to solve the death problem in the first fruits of my resurrection. And all of you can follow. And then we'll set up this kingdom. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And the rest of you that happen to be alive, when the Lord comes, you're going to meet him in the air forever be with the Lord and he's going to come back down and set up his kingdom on this earth. Matthew 17, 22, they gathered in Galilee. Jesus said to them, the son of man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him. He'll be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. Not about the resurrection part, but about the death part. Matthew 17, John 2, early on in John, the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? You're going to tip over the tables in the temple mount. What authority do you have? And Jesus said, destroy this temple. And in three days, I will raise it up. And the Jews said, it's taken 46 years to remodel this temple, to build it, to build it, to make it look like it did, because Herod had put all this money into it, Herod the Great. And you will raise it up in three days. But John adds, editorial note here, he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, bodily, physically raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. The Old Testament had said this. He had then come on the scene himself and affirmed that and stated and even poetically in that passage made it clear temple of my body you destroyed in three days i'm going to rise from the dead teacher we wish to see a sign from you they said in matthew 12 but he said to them an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet jonah may not be the hard kind of evidence you want in an evangelistic discussion but when you start looking for the pattern and the type of that picture of the resurrection you'll see it even in a prophet that goes to assyria to nineveh and preaches being in this whale counted out or whatever this big fish was And he says, you're going to see that sign. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Two ways to look at that, by the way, as long as we're talking about apologetics, you're going to say, well, he wasn't three days and three nights. If he died on Friday and then was raised on Sunday morning, then you only, you know, you don't, you got two and a half days. Well, you can deal with either the reckoning, which is clear throughout scripture. I got several examples. I've done this in other messages as to how in scripture, the three days and three night term is a way to describe any part of a day. That's just the Jewish reckoning. If you don't like it, we're dealing with a Jewish text here. Matthew's certainly writing to a Jewish audience. Or if you don't like that, here's the deal. You want to talk about when Jesus died. Let's think about it. Does he not die when darkness was cast over the face of the earth? It was night in the midday, it says. So we got night at the beginning. He dies there in the darkness. The light comes back. The sun goes down. The sun comes up. Sun goes down. Sun comes up. Three days, three nights. John 10, 17 and 18. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. And this charge I've received from my Father, it's a charge. Where'd you get it? Got it from God. But guess what? God does nothing without revealing it to his prophets, the Old Testament says, at least in general terms. But he has a big plan. He's going to tell the prophets. The prophets are going to tell the people. So God can say, I wrote a book. You can believe it. You can see it as authoritative. And guess what? He revealed that in the scripture. I've received the charge from the Father. The Father's made it clear in the Old Testament. That's why he can look to scripture and find this principle that we've been trying to highlight tonight. He lays down his life. He takes it up again. Matthew 27, 62, the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said... This is the soldiers now. While he was still alive after three days, all rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure. I'm not, it's not the Roman officials. It's the Jewish officials that are going to ask the Romans to guard the tomb. They're asking Pilate, the head of the Romans. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples go and steal him away and tell 
the people he's risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first fraud. Well, the first one wasn't a fraud. He claims to be the son of God who's going to be the eternal king. It's going to be an incorruptible body reigning in an eternal body over an eternal kingdom, over eternal citizens. That wasn't a fraud. That was the truth. He was who he said he was. And the last fraud that they said would be a fraud if people said it ever happened was no fraud either. So the historical claim, just to really quickly move through this, is a public professional execution. And what is in that historical document? Well, here's the claim at least, and I call it a claim just for the sake of apologetics. Well, the claim is he was publicly and professionally killed. The soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. They stripped him, put a scarlet robe on him, twisting together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head, put a reed in his right hand that was mocking a, a scepter. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put on his own clothes and led him away to crucify him. Who was doing this? The soldiers of the governor. They're good at it. They're public executioners. They know how to do it. Luke 23, 46, Jesus was calling out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God and he's saying, he's dead, past tense. And all the crowds, here's the public part, that had assembled for the spectacle when they saw what had taken place, that is he died, they returned home beating their breasts. Public, professional execution. That's the historical claim. John 19, 32, the soldiers came, but when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, who came and who saw? The soldiers did. What are the soldiers? Professional executioners. And they said, hey, he's dead. The doctor signed the death certificate here. In modern terms, the soldiers said he's dead. They didn't break his legs, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. These guys marked him as dead. Mark 15, 45. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. The historical claim is there was a public professional execution. The historical claim is the tomb where he was laid is empty. Luke 24, 1 through 4. On the first day of the week, early at dawn, they went out to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared. And when they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. The tomb is empty. That's the point I'm trying to make of this passage. John 20, verse 2. So she ran. Mary Magdalene went to Simon Peter and the other disciples. They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. Why? Because it's empty. We do not know where they've laid him. So Peter went with the other disciples. They were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping in, he saw the linen cloths lying there. So he's gone. You got a the tomb is empty. You got witness, witness testimony. The claim in scripture is he was professionally publicly killed. The tomb where he was laid was empty. And then they're saying, we see him. John 20, verses 14 through 16. Having said this, they turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she didn't know that it was Jesus. He says to her, woman, why are you weeping? And whom are you seeking? Supposing to him to be the gardener. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which is the Aramaic word for teacher. So this passage claims she talked to the risen Christ. This is the road to Emmaus discussion, looking back at the women coming to the tomb. Jesus says to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary? That's the whole foundation we built for the first 40 minutes of our talk tonight. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? A reference to his resurrection. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures the things concerning himself. John 20, 24, now Thomas, one of the 12, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. 
post-resurrection. But he said to them, unless I see his hands and the marks of his nails and place my finger into the marks of his nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were again inside and Thomas was with them. All of the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Shalom, typical Hebrew greeting. And he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands put out your hand, place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered and said, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed, happy are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Believed on the testimony, which is exactly what he was going to send Thomas out to do, was to give testimony, reliable testimony, witness testimony of Christ's resurrection, which is sufficient to believe. Acts 1, 3 through 5, Christ presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them for 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. An eternal kingdom, eternal citizens, and an eternal king reigning over them. We need resurrected bodies. And that's what he was talking about. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Christ was making his appearances for 40 days. Acts 13, 28. And though they found him in him no guilt worthy of death, as Paul preaches here about Christ, they asked Pilate to have him executed professional executioners. That's the head of them. And when they had carried out all that was written, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb and God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. Now, he says, who are now his witnesses to the people. Witness testimony, that was the foundation of this entire appeal. Well, it wasn't. The foundation of the entire appeal was the Old Testament scriptures, the logic of the message of the Bible, the specific prophecies of the Old Testament, the prophecies of Christ. And then the eyewitness testimonies, an empty tomb, professional killing. First Corinthians 15, he was buried, raised on the third day. In accordance with the scripture, he appeared to Cephas and to the 12, that's Peter. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to the apostles. Then Paul even goes on to say, he appeared to him, as you might remember on the road to Damascus. Letter D, the historical claim is the entire movement of Christianity was built on a living Christ and his resurrection. So I put it this way, a living Christ's massive influence is the testimony of the New Testament. Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he told the disciples. Go therefore and make disciples, not just of this little band of people. Don't just strengthen the faith of the 120, but go out there baptizing people of all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And hey, I'm a living Christ. I am exercising dominion and authority through the proxy, if you want to call it that, of the Spirit of God. I'll be with you always, even to the end of the age. The movement of the church will continue and grow because I'm going to be at the helm building my church. Speaking of that passage, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is Christ speaking in the future about an ongoing reality. I will build it. I'm going to build it. Not, it will be built after I'm gone. Matthew 13, 31, he put forth another parable saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took, sowed in the field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the plants and it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make its nest in its branches. This huge movement I'm gonna make is gonna start with me, much like he says of his own life, like a, as Paul said, like a seed being put in the ground, it dies, it comes back and it creates this gigantic organization of which we're a part of. Acts 17, 5, they attacked the house of Jason. In this passage here, you might remember seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers out before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also when Jason had received them. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king. Not that there was another king, but there is another king. That they have a king that's reigning, and this king is Jesus. And he's somehow by proxy through the spirit working on collecting an entire organization. 
They're turning the world upside down. They're living Christ's massive influence on the world. Acts 26, as Paul says to Agrippa to this day, I've had the help that comes from God, and so I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ would suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead. Was he the first to rise from the dead? Yes, he was the first to rise from the dead. All the others were resuscitations. He's the first fruits of the kind of body that's going to live eternally, puts on immortality. And he would proclaim both light to our people and to the Gentiles. And as he was saying this, in his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. And Paul said, I'm not out of my mind, most excellent Festus. I'm speaking true and rational words. The king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. It has not been done in the corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, in a short time, you'd persuade me to be a Christian. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but all who hear me today might become as I am, except for these chains, the world I want to be converted to the living Christ. And this movement goes on 2,000 years later. Luke 24, two guys on the road to Emmaus, one is named Cleopas. He answered, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened here in these days? This was widespread. And he said, what things? Jesus is leading them with this question. And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man of mighty deeds and word before people, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes. And besides all this, now it's the third day since these things happened. Moreover, this morning, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that he'd, they'd seen visions of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. The objections. Trust me, I've seen a nauseating amount of reactions and read the objections to the resurrection. And here's what it boils down to in every case, at least of those that present themselves as intellectuals in our society. Letter A, resurrections can't happen. That's the argument. It can't happen. That's the objection. You're claiming Christ rose from the dead. Forget that that's the whole point of the Bible. Forget that that's the whole prophetic plan. Forget that that was forecast. Forget that that was specifically given as the whole point of the whole thing of creation. Forget it. It didn't happen. Why? Because it can happen. Because resurrections don't happen. Well, I guess the only way you could say that is if you are a full-blown atheist. And so I watched atheists. I listened to atheists. I listened to their lectures. And I'm saying, I guess if you're an atheist, and even atheists are willing to admit, well, maybe it happened, but it's improbable it probably didn't happen even if I don't believe there's a God. But I'm saying it starts with that. If you're a full-blown naturalist and there's nothing other than natural stuff, well, then I'm saying, listen, resurrections, I guess, don't happen. But if there is a God, and as we've said in our series here, if he's not only capable, but has chosen to intervene, which I'm saying he intervened based on a schedule, based on the Moses and the prophets and all that he depicted in scripture as going to happen, well, then I'm saying, well, okay, I, I guess I'm gonna say your can't happen to me makes no sense. It makes no sense because I believe there is a God. I believe that God can intervene in natural law as is overworn on the illustration. If I roll a pin off this podium and it falls to the ground, that is the natural course of things. Unless of course it's intervened by some other force. My hand comes and stops it. There is a suspension of the natural order. And all I'm saying, if there is a God that can reach into space and time and say dead cells in this body are going to be given life, well then God can do that. And then if he can change them so they're incorruptible and immortal, he can do that. Resurrection can't happen is not an argument in my mind. 
The second thing they're going to say ad nauseum is reports, reports of resurrection are false. They're just always false. And again, why? Because they can't happen. And then if I push them further, they're going to say, well, because the Bible's not reliable. And your Bible says it happened, but I don't believe in your Bible. And then they're going to say, well, it's either the witnesses or the editors who edited your Bible that are deceiving you. Or the witnesses or the editors are delusional. That is the argument. It's just not complicated. There is no resurrection of Christ because resurrections can't happen. And I know they can't happen because they don't happen. And I know that if you say it happened, you're only looking to the Bible and the Bible's not reliable because... I'm just saying they're either deceptive, they got an axe to grind, and they're giving you a piece of information because they've got some agenda, or they're delusional, they think it happened, but they don't know what they're talking about. That is the argument. It doesn't get any, I mean, you can put, make, you can put it in the most erudite, sesquipedalian words you want, and, and, and be Mr. Smarty Pants, but it all comes down to that. And I'm saying in my mind, I've established in my own thinking at least, there is a God, he can intervene, he's revealed himself in reliable documents, and he said he was going to do it, and I think there are reliable witnesses, there are no editors, and I don't think they were delusional because there's no evidence that they're delusional. Matter of fact, to the contrary, they seem to be very sound and wise in their thinking. So the options are deception. Are there lying witnesses? That's not consistent with their teaching. As I said two Easter's ago, I gave you some examples of this, but the whole point of the Bible was, this is about truth. Truth is a correspondence with reality. It's about telling the truth. It's about the virtue of truth. It's about the virtue of honesty. So I'm just saying the whole point of Christianity, at least in the moral teaching and the ethical code that it presents is truth is better than lying. Lying is bad. Truth is good. And to say the whole cornerstone of the theology is intentional deception because the witnesses are lying, I'm going to say it doesn't make sense. Not consistent with their character, I'm going to say. Lying doesn't seem to match what they teach and lying certainly doesn't seem to match what they do. There's nothing about their lives, as 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14 makes clear. Paul says, look at my life. He says it all the time. Look at my life. Did, have I stolen anything? Have I taken anything? Have I worked hard among you? Look at me. He says, and if you're telling me that Christ didn't rise from the dead, I think you just need to see what you're saying, that somehow what I've been telling you is deception. If Christ has not been raised, then we are misrepresenting God because we have testified about God that he raised Christ. So I just want you to see how inconsistent that is with everything you know about me. It doesn't seem to be consistent with their character. And it certainly doesn't seem consistent with their persistence because their persistence was persistence not in a vacuum. It was persistence against opposition, against persecution, against even martyrdom. As I often quote, the Watergate investigation is a great example of this. As has often been said, Watergate involved a conspiracy to cover up perpetuated by those intensely loyal to their president. Chuck Colson wrote these words, by the way. John Dean turned state's evidence to save his own skin, quote unquote, and that in only two weeks. The lie could not be held together for two weeks. And then everyone else jumped ship in order to save themselves embarrassment or maybe prison. And nobody's life was at stake. Deception can be deception, but I think it doesn't match the persistence. Well, then people say, well, they're lying editors. Maybe the witnesses, you know, we can't, we just, it's not even a, not even a topic and not even an issue because really what it is, is someone assembled these and claimed there were witnesses that there wasn't. So the people that assembled the Bible, well, we dealt with that. Did we not? There are no editors. Nobody edited the new Testament. I mean that we spent two weeks trying to talk about what you have is an accurate reflection of what was written. And there's an early inscribed testimony. Sometimes you look at the gospels and we think they're the earliest, actually the earliest written account of the resurrection is first Corinthians chapter 15 verses three and four. And as in our new Testament survey, we went through this last year or two years ago, whatever it was. And we dealt with the dating of the new Testament. This is a really solid dating of, of Corinthians because we looked at Paul's travel schedule and all the rest. So we're talking 21 years. Think about what was going on 21 years ago. 
And Paul says it this way. I delivered to you a first importance what also I received. In other words, this has been the statement. And most people would affirm this is some kind of creedal statement from the early church. And the early church, think about what you were doing 21 years ago. This was early inscribed testimony. That he was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures, which is a bigger, bigger phrase than most people give credit for according to the scriptures. The whole point of the Bible, the whole point of the prophetic word. Okay, this is the other thing. Delusions, delusions, delusions. They're just primitive people. They're, del- they're hallucinating. And again, I've dealt with this in a lot of lectures. I mean, this is standard fare in all the apologetics books, but to really claim a hallucination, a hallucination cannot be, I mean, the mass hallucination is the most improbable explanation of anything when you've got this scale of testimonial for a fact. Too many. And simultaneous. Remember the passage, 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared to Cephas, then the 12. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time. Not to mention, he was showing himself to the 11 in the John account in the Thomas passage that we quoted. I just, and again, we think of them as superstitious ancients. These were not, listen, are there superstitious people in our day? Horoscopes, UFOs. Don't get me started on the, you know, amulets, the lucky charms, the rabbit's foots, the things you invest in that you think do something that they have no evidence for it. Um, Flat earthers. I mean, are there superstitious, delusional people in our generation? If you can point 2,000 years ago to the 21st century Americans having some superstitious people in it, does that make everything we say in historical assertions, does that make it false? That's exactly what they're doing about the ancients. These are the people building aqueducts and taking water, doing fascinating, amazing things, building the wonders of the world in many cases. I mean, with architects and astronomers, not astrologers, astronomers. I mean, there was stuff going on in China at this time. There are things happening in the Middle East. All I'm saying is you've got to think of these as real people. And if you can point at something, as I saw in a debate even today, well, you know, in the ancients, some people believe this. Dude, some people believe a lot of stuff in this age. Does that make what we say in every, well, anything anybody says in America in the 21st century has got to be a hoax because, you know, they, they all believe superstitious nonsense. Do some people believe superstitious? They do now and they did then. It's not an argument. I mean, there were people who are testifying to this in persistence, in a consistency with their character, in consistency with their teaching, delusion. And I read this. Matter of fact, don't bring the Old Testament up because you bring the Old Testament up. That just proves this was all wish fulfillment. It was all what they wanted to see happen. It's what they had hoped for. Well, all I'm saying is it is interesting to see that in the accounts of the New Testament, they all seemed to show a lot of incredulity, a lot of, I don't want to believe this, a refusal to believe what was in front of them. They didn't want to believe it. When he, when he prophesied it, even in his own lifetime, Peter pulled him aside and may it never be. It distressed them, the talk of all this. They did not want to see him die, and they certainly couldn't believe that he was risen. And when he appeared, they were rebuffing the facts. We're seeing a spirit. That's how this is presented. Not like, finally, the thing that we've been hoping for. The phoenix rises from the ashes, everything we'd hoped for. And again, I just think it's way too easy to disprove a wish. If this is the, if this is the thing that in Athens and Ephesus and Corinth, they're saying you're turning the world upside down, and they're riding over this thought, I'm thinking, go back when all of this went on, when the Romans did not want to hear about a resurrected Messiah and disprove it. How easy is this to disprove? Your Messiah is right here, guys. We know where he is. Here's his body. Let's hang it out for you. Or the option is this is divinely fulfilled prophecy, which is the way I'd like you to think of it. The resurrection of Christ is divinely fulfilled prophecy. Either it's deception, it's delusion, or it's divinely fulfilled prophecy. In 1 Corinthians 15, 14, Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, all of our preaching, everything we've been talking about, and they're preaching from the Old Testament, mind you, one of the earliest letters of Paul, 1 Corinthians 54 AD, AD 54, 
He's saying all his preaching, which is based on Old Testament text, it's all for nothing. And your faith, by the way, in all this, God's plan to fix the problem of sin, it's all in vain. And we're found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile. And all the thing that this whole thing was supposed to solve, your sin problem with its ramifications of relational death and physical biological death is just still there. Then those also who have fallen asleep, a euphemism for death, who are dead in Christ, they trusted in Christ, but they're dead now. They're gone, they're perished, there's no hope. For if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. That was the physical, biological, tangible, corresponding to reality claim and assertion of the New Testament. The first fruits, the whole point is, this is what's gonna happen to you. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For by, for as by man came death, by a man also has come the resurrection of the dead. That is the whole point of a dying, fallen world. 1 Corinthians 15, 26, the last enemy to be destroyed is the problem of biological death. Solve the relational death problem by becoming a Christian. Then look forward to getting past the seeing through a glass dimly to finally being in the presence of God. And then he gives us back bodies that are immortal. When the perishable should put on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that was written to quote Hosea again, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is the whole point of Christianity. And your neighbor, I shared the gospel this week or got as far as I could get with this guy who basically told me, as so many do, I don't think it really matters. I don't think any of this matters. Nothing could be further from the truth. This is not about picking a team to cheer for during the NBA finals. This is about whether or not you think you have any hope when your body is lowered into a grave. This is the whole point. And the the guy shrugged his shoulders and said, I don't think, I don't, it don't matter. Nothing could matter more.